thousandth time. I hope you still feel welcome somehow. <clears throat> um, yeah, man, wasn't that fun? My favorite part is Creed going, what do I do now? <laughs> I hope someone had that on video. Um, that's great. Yeah, if you want to, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We're going to look at uh, a couple verses this morning in Acts, and then we're going to look at a couple verses in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit abstract this morning, so put on your non-linear thinking hat, if that's okay with you. Uh, while you're doing that, I, w- I just want to tell you two stories that have absolutely nothing to do with anything I'm going to talk about this morning. Is that cool? Perfect. Yeah, this is really fun. Um, this is really great. About, about two months ago, uh, some visitors came to hang out with us. Visitors who have been wanting to have a baby for years and years and were unable to. Completely unable to. And it's like the dream of their heart is to have a child. Two months ago, they come to us and Justin grabs a couple of the pr- prophetic guys and a couple of uh, the healing guys and several of the women who have had children, uh, even a, a lady or two who had had trouble getting pregnant but then was able to have children and they went in and they lay hand, laid hands on them back in the prayer room and uh, we just got word this week that uh, that woman is now seven weeks pregnant that's just so good isn't it it's so good I love that then let me tell you something no, no, I want to tell you a story now it's just going to fry your brain okay like that one was like okay we kind of expect that here's a story that will fry your brain uh, everybody here knows Justin right this is just about the goodness of God. Uh, so everybody knows that Justin roasts coffee at my store, right? Okay. This is, this is how good the Lord is, all right? So uh, in order to roast coffee, Justin has this machine. It looks like a Willy Wonka factory, okay? But it, it runs on natural gas. So he had to have a little, uh, little propane tank put out behind my, behind my, uh, my store. It's a little 80-gallon tank, and it sets out, I don't know, 80, 100 gallons, whatever it is. A little 80-gallon tank. And he started roasting coffee back in the fall, early fall, like um, October. And he roasted hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds of coffee all through the winter. One day it occurred to me, I'm like, Justin, you need to call. You need to go check your, you need to go check your gas because I'd hate for you to get a batch in there and then you run out of gas and ruin a batch. He's like, you know, that's really true. He goes out and he pecks on the tank and he realizes that he's almost out. Uh, and so he roasts some coffee. And he and Michael Giordano are in there roasting one afternoon on the last bit of the tank. And while they're roasting, uh, they roast several batches, and they roast one little, small little batch at the very end. It was a six-pound batch. And as soon as the roast was over, literally, he heard the, he heard the flames flicker, like, you know, anybody ever had a gas, you know, a propane, uh, you know, out, okay? So Justin gets up the next morning, and he calls the propane guys and says, hey, need some propane, can you guys deliver it to me? And hangs up the phone. Goes on about his business. Propane guys call him a little bit later on. They say, hey, uh, where were you talking about? And he says, well, at Sunshine Natural behind there. And they were like, yeah, yeah. He's, the guy calls him and says, you don't need any gas. Justin says, what do you mean I don't need any gas? He goes, yeah, we went to fill it up, but it's full. Justin's like, it is not full. It is absolutely not full. I used it all last night. Mike and I were in there, and we roasted the last six pounds. The flames went out. There's nothing. He's like... I don't know what you're talking about. The tank is full. Now, what is that about? God's just really good. 
You know, Jehovah Jireh is no joke. It's, not an, it's really not an Old Testament joke. It's, it's a real deal. And for whatever reason, some of you all need to have Bubba just lay hands on you. Uh, because Justin has, his entire life, ever since I've known him, he's my brother-in-law, his entire life, ever since I've known him, he has walked in divine provision. Justin's run out of gas to lay his hands on his car and just turn it on and keep going. That's happened. doesn't happen to me. I don't understand it. But God's incredibly good, and he has a personal way of work, working through everybody's life. So two stories that have nothing to do with anything. Other than Jesus is dramatically good. All right. All right, for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about uh, a couple of things. Uh, essentially, that, that we're living in the, in, in, the, in the dawn of a new kind of day. Because of Jesus' death, burial, and especially because of his resurrection, uh, the winter that the earth has been frozen in is now beginning to thaw, and we're beginning to move into, uh, and this has been happening for the last 2,000 years, uh, the earth is literally thawing, and we're, we're, we're entering into the, the spring of God, if I can say it that way. Uh, I told you guys the story about how I grew up on a strawberry farm, and there's that anticipation that comes when you, when you grow up on a strawberry farm. You go out early in the spring, you find the first strawberry on the vine, and as soon as you find it, you pluck it off and you eat it, and it's a moment where you feel a little bit, uh, a little bit conflicted, because it's great to find the first strawberry of spring. It tastes so good. It's 100 million times better than the store-bought one. But you're a little bit sad because you just ate it, right? And there's, yeah. And, you, and, and I remember as a kid jumping through the rows and running up and down to look and see if there's any other ripe strawberries, you know. And at the beginning, you don't find anything, but you can, you can have joy because you know that the, the, the rest of the strawberries, all of the other ones that are hard and chartreuse green, in just a few days, they will, they will begin to change color, soften, and ripen. When you find the first strawberry, the thing you know about it is that there will be more that follow, Right? And so Jesus is the first, he's the first strawberry on the vine. There's all these different images painted for us in the New Testament. Um, Jesus is, in Romans, he's called the firstborn of many brethren. Uh, in Colossians, he's the firstborn of those who have fallen asleep. And, and so there's this thing about the resurrection has, has, changed, has changed everything. It's changed life and it's changed death. And because of that, not only is Jesus alive and alive forever, not only has, something, not only has God done something in Jesus, but he's done something in the earth, something that will eventually affect you and I. In fact, it's already affected you and I. The future is beginning to be poured out into the present. And so that's what we've been talking about for a, a, couple, a, couple, um, a couple weeks, and I want to I add just some thoughts this morning to that. Uh, if you want to, let's look, in, let's look in the book of Acts, just at the first three verses here. This is right before... Jesus gets taken up into heaven, and this is, what he, this is what Luke writes down for us. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, that name Theophilus just means friend of God. We're not sure if that was written to a specific person or just in general to those who are friends of God. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a, per- a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So resurrected Jesus shows up and he's hanging out with his friends. And in the process of hanging out with his friends, uh, he begins to give proofs to them that he's alive. Why? Because the natural inclination would be at the beginning anyway to think that this is a ghost, right? 
Some kind of strange ghost is coming back and haunting us. Not at all. Jesus is alive. And so he, he shows up. Uh, I, like, I like what we get in the Gospel of John. Jesus just walks through walls. There's something about his resurrected body that's similar but really different. And so he walks through walls, and he shows up, and he begins to give many convincing proofs. And, and one of the things I like about that little line, many convincing proofs, is uh, Jesus is not afraid of your skepticism. Like, he, he, will even, he will even track down your skepticism at times because he's such a pursuer of people. And so resurrected Lord Jesus shows up, even people who are skeptical, even people who have trouble, doubt, trouble with uh, belief, and, and sometimes are gripped with doubt. You know, hello, that's probably some of us in here, right? Jesus shows up and he gives one proof, right? No, he gives many convincing proofs that he was actually alive and in his body. And then after he showed himself to these men, he gave uh, many proofs that he was alive, and he appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Underline that last little phrase there. Spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Have you ever thought, have you ever wondered this? Okay, I believe in Jesus. I give. I believe in Jesus, and I'm baptized, and I'm dried off, and I've got my, my new clothes on. Uh, you know, maybe sometime that moment, or perhaps five years later, but after you began to put your trust in Jesus, did any of you ever have this thought, what's next? Okay, uh, you know, I'm not going to hell, what's next, right? Maybe some of us just had that thought. See, here's the deal. Jesus' appearance on the planet, Jesus' life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection wasn't merely so that you and I could be saved from something. Sin, death, shame, guilt, hell. But it was, it was so that we could be saved into something. So if we've never had that thought, what's next? It'd be good to begin to think about that. What's next? And it's really strange. Because if, if it were just about some sort of a divine rescue mission, Jesus would have just what? He would have just like cruci- you know, been crucified and his blood would have cleansed us from sins. And you know, he, maybe God, because he's really sweet, would, would have raised him up and Jesus could have like just disappeared up into heaven somewhere and it's all done and it's good, right? But why did Jesus hang out for 40 days? The reason Jesus hung out for 40 days is because of the what's next. And what he wanted to do, he began to talk with his inner group of disciples and then a greater group. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a greater group of about 500. Jesus hung out with about 500 people during these 40 days. And he began to talk to them about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, we know this, you know, we've heard me talk about this a lot about here. But the kingdom of God is where God's rule and his reign, his perfect rule and his perfect reign, his perfect order, the thing that's best for the planet, the thing that's best for people, that place where that is done. So he begins to extend the kingdom. So what's next? God wants to extend the kingdom. Jesus only had one message. It was the kingdom of God. And even after he's resurrected, he's still continuing to put out that vision of the kingdom. So why did Jesus hang out? He hung out. He hung out to extend the kingdom. We've got several, um, we've got several builders in the house. Uh, pretty much, if you go to the vineyard, you're one of two things. You're either a teacher or a builder. <laughs> we've got a lot of builders here. And one of the things that I've talked to all the builders, one of the things about uh, a building is, 
is it's easier to build something new, right? The easiest thing to do is build something new. The more difficult thing is to take uh, an older house and remodel it into something great, right? And this is, this is really a picture of the Father for us. God, God the Father isn't just someone who's a builder. He doesn't just build houses, and then when it, when it got bad, he didn't just get, give up on it and set the house on fire, but he's a, he's a recreator. He's a, he's a rebuilder, and he's a remodeler. It's one of the things he is. And so one of the pi- pictures that we see is in Genesis, we see this picture of, of the Father who speaks and, and who creates the worlds with his words. And even after he had gone awry, he didn't give up on it. He sent Jesus, the remodeler, into it. And you might be thinking, well, what in the world does that have to do with the kingdom? Well, it has to do with, it has to do with the kingdom of God, and it has to do with the, that what's next feeling. Um, it has to do with what's next. See, for a lot of us, we've lived with the momentum. Let me put it this way. For a lot of us, we've lived with the momentum of sin, shame, and death pushing behind us. Like everywhere we go, it, it's not so much as we went there, it's that we got pushed there by sin, guilt, shame, and death. But in the kingdom of heaven, and what God really wants to do, and what he came to do in Jesus, is that he wanted to take us out of being pushed someplace, and he wanted to allow us to, be, uh, to live into a place where we have a picture of the future and we're living towards something, not just being shoved around by sin, sickness, and death. And because of that, one of the things I want to talk about this morning is I want to talk about uh, getting a vision for the future. And I want to talk about uh, getting a, getting a, being the kind of people who have a vision of, of God's future coming into the present. Is that all right? Yeah, that's really the only thing I feel like the Lord wanted to, us to get to this morning. We've covered a lot of other ground, but uh, I want to talk about uh, dreaming with God this morning and being visionary people and being able to see what isn't and then bring it into the present. Uh, when Jesus was hanging out with his disciples, uh, they eventually went to him and they said, Hey, Jesus, John teaches his disciples to pray. Why don't you teach us how to pray? And Jesus gives them the, model's prayer, the model prayer, the Lord's prayer. And the very beginning of the Lord's Prayer is what? On earth as it is in heaven, right? On earth as it is in heaven. That's, that's the mission. That's the point. And when Jesus says, on earth as it is in heaven, one of the things he's saying to his, to his people, to his friends, to his disciples, is that we're to live with a vision of the future coming in to the present. But in order to do that, we have to be able to see it. And I, I want to just, just show us a few things here. I think are real key for our lives. And it might upset the apple cart for some of us in the room, but that's okay. Um, first of all, I just want to tell you about how God created the earth to begin with, okay? Because with the death, burial, and especially the resurrection of, of Jesus, God is recreating his good earth. So when God created the earth, one of the things we have to realize is this, is that God created everything in the known universe. We already know that. Uh, before, before there was before there was anything, before there was anything that any of us experienced, the, the land beneath our feet, the sky above our head, uh, the birds, the trees, the cat that tears your trash apart, before there was anything, there was God and he was, he was, al- he was in heaven, but he wasn't alone. He, he was in perfect fellowship 
with Holy Spirit and with the Son. They were a sweet community within themselves. And in that moment, at some point in time, God, God decided that it wasn't, He wasn't simply happy enough to, to live with Spirit and Son. It wasn't like they were upset, but there was something in His heart that desired more, and so God spoke everything into being that we know about right now. Realize, you realize I'm not talking about pain and sickness and all of that. That didn't come from him. That came from another place. But God spoke everything, everything into being. So every, every sun, every moon, every star, every planet, and not only sun, moon, stars, and planets, but he also spoke people like you and me. Even before you were around, you were in the heart of God, you were in the mind of God, and you were a dream in his heart, okay? And this is the thing I want us to see this morning. Is that, um, is that that everything, everything that we know came from, came from that moment when he spoke it into being. But have you ever thought about what was before the moment that he spoke it? Have you ever thought about that? Before the moment he spoke it, it was alive in his heart and it was a dream in his heart. All of creation was a dream inside of God's heart. This is incredibly encouraging to me because one of the things that lets us know is that God is a dreamer. God's a dreamer. He's the original dreamer. He's actually the biggest dreamer. See, a lot of us uh, live with this tension in our lives because life has a way of, of trying to call us out of dreams and life has a way of trying to call us out of, out of especially big dreams, like, you know, at a certain level, uh, life tells us, you know, hey, you really shouldn't dream, but if you're going to dream, you should only dream about, like, like, right here, right? Because anything beyond that is just idealism and foolishness, right? One of the things I want to tell you is, that's absolutely positively not true, because the God who created us is, is primarily, he is a dreamer, and everything that we know, everyone that you know, Every, every great nuance about a person, every subtle thing about a human being, before it was ever a reality, it was a dream inside of his heart. And that's reason enough to dream. Not only that, but the earth wasn't sneezed into existence. There was nothing that was accidental. It was spoken. And this is a really big deal. So everything began as a dream in God's heart. But then when God went about creating, He, he created with words. And words are a sign, at least in this context, words are a sign Words aren't accidents. You understand what I'm saying? Especially when they're the words of God. So God spoke some things, and they came out of his, his wise, intelligent, dreaming heart. Right? So there was, there was no accident. It wasn't as though God uh, sneezed in heaven, and then all of this just happened by accident. No, it was the careful and considered wisdom of God first sparked by a dream in his heart. And so everything we know came out of this, this dream side of God. So what's the point? The point is this. In order to see the future come into the present, we've got to be dreamers. 
It's one of the ways that we begin to participate with God. See, one of the things, one of the things that's been shut down in the church is, is imagination. Um, in fact, uh, a lot of times you'll hear people tell you, you know, you've got to be careful about your imagination. You know? Actually, the truth is, if you're not using your imagination, that's way worse. You, you were designed. See, God said he made us in his, in his image. And there's something about the, the indelible fingerprint of God and being made in his image uh, that has given us the ability to, to think and dream about things that aren't even yet. That part of you, that isn't, that isn't, that isn't insignificant. That's one of the main things that God sowed into humanity. And it's one of the main ways that we participate with, with, uh, with seeing the kingdom of heaven, the future, being brought into the present. What am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say, church, is that in order for us, in order for us to see uh, recreation, in order for us to see redemption work, in order for us to see God give himself most fully to the community that we've been born into, one of the things it's going to require for us is it's going to require us to be dreamers like him who can see people for who they will be rather than for they are. It's going to require us to be dreamers that can see uh, institutions for what they could be for rather, rather than what they actually are. It's going, to, it's going to require us to be the kind of people who can, who can look into a dark place and not just see darkness, but w- that we can be the kind of people who can see the gold that's hidden in the mountain. You know what I'm saying? This is dreaming. The kingdom of heaven comes with this kind of creativity. See, we've got to be a prophetic community who sees the future and calls it out. This is one of the reasons I want this church, and this is one of the things I'm excited about. One of the reasons I want this church to be a prophetic community is because the essence of the prophetic is to see what isn't and then begin to speak it into the present. That's, that's one of the main calls of the prophetic. That, that's why it's encouraging. It's to look at something that isn't the way that it will be and then begin to speak to it as though it is. And where do you get the words to speak into those situations unless you're a dreamer? You won't have those words. We've got to be that prophetic community. The other thing I want to say about this is when it comes to being a prophetic community, it requires us to be dreamers. And when we have dreams, that infects our vision, okay? So we become visionaries. But it's not just good enough for us to be visionaries. We need to, be, we need to begin to and take God's counsel and, and take the dreams and the visions that we see, and then we, then we begin to speak them. See, God created, and he, it wasn't an accident. He spoke things into being. Everything that comes into being begins when a person first, it captures their heart on the dream side, and then they begin to speak it. They begin to talk about it. And we could, I could talk about this for a long time. But everything that we know, very, very little happens by accident. People get a, get a dream, they get a vision for something, and it's really important that we begin to speak it and we begin to talk about it because after that, we give, we give, actually, we give the Holy Spirit permission to come in and anoint something. See, one of the, one of the, one of the things that will, that will change Campbellsville isn't, uh, let me put, I'll say it in a positive way, One of the things that will change Campbellsville is when the church becomes an active, dreaming, prophetic, speaking place. 
And, and by the church, I don't mean Adam and Justin. I mean y'all. See, one of the things that the Lord is actually saying to our community right now is, He's saying, I would like for everybody in the room, I would like for you to open up your eyes, and I would like you to, think, I would like you to look into your neighborhoods, your schools, your community, uh, the places that you work, and I would like you to see every single thing that isn't, that isn't a picture of my perfect kingdom, that isn't a picture of my perfect love, that isn't a picture of my perfect rule, everything that steals from people rather than gives them life, I would like you to look into those situations and then I would like you to look to me and get a vision for what that should be and then I would like you to begin to prophesy over it. First in your private prayers and then in the one-on-one meetings that you have with people. Those are actually the areas that we're called to. See, dreams are important because they're the magnified workings of our desires. Dreams are so important because they're the magnified outworkings of our desires. I, I, I know this is going to be shocking for some of us because we've been told the exact, actually we've been told the exact opposite, but uh, everybody in here was made to live out of desire. It's shocking because the church is the most repressed place on the planet. It's the place where we hear, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't feel that, don't do this, don't do this. Don't. You were never meant to live that way. In fact, when you begin to... When you begin to live out of the don't do side, you're just living out of religion. It, it blocks the heart. It stops up the heart. It frustrates the heart. And eventually, you do one of two things. You either die or you become really angry and really good at following the rules. And neither of those solve anything. The church is so repressed. And, and, and it's because we're so afraid of desire. But the, the, the very true, uh, the truthest thing I know to tell you this morning is that everyone in here was made to live out of desire. See, God dreamed a dream, and his dream was people, and it was people who were, uh, people who were like him. It was people who dream, and uh, in order to dream, we have to be people who are, who are led by desire. Uh, I want to I talk about this. I talked about it just a little bit last week, but I want to pull it out a little bit more. We were made to live out of desire. In Genesis chapter 1, uh, in verse 26, um, 27, and 28, specifically verse 28, Perfect, you got it up there, great. Um, look at this. So look at verse 26. God says, Let's, let us make them in our image. Who, who's he talking about? He's talking about people. And in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Verse 28. And then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Stop. The very first command that God gives them, gives humanity. He gives humanity a command slash call, and it's the call to be fruitful and increase in number, right? We talked a little bit about this last week, but again, I want to go over this. How did Adam and Eve know how to be fruitful and increase in number? It's desire. You know what's crazy about this? God, God didn't have any awkward conversations with Adam and Eve about sex education, <laughs> There were no strange pictures. There were no diagrams. There wasn't that really weird class you had in seventh grade. Right? No, they were led by desire, right? 
So God gives them a command, and the only way that they can fulfill the call, the only way they can fulfill the command is to be led by what? Desire. You were made to be led by desire. You, you were made to move in your life from a place of desire. You were not made to live in a place of repression. That will kill you. In fact, in fact, living a life that's mostly known for repression makes you less and less of a person who's made in his image. You were made to live from a place of desire. So he says, he says, be fruitful and increase in number. And they were really good at that. In fact, you and I are here because they were so good at it. So that was the first part. The second part, God tells him, is this. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So you have to do the first part in order to be able to do the second part. And so you and I were also, you and I were also made to rule. Isn't that a crazy word? Essentially what God is saying is, I'm putting everyone in here in charge of the planet. We were made to rule. Doesn't that sound so Republican? We were made to rule. It just sounds so incredibly Republican. Um, yeah, that word rule, it brings up all, the, it conjures up all these images for us. Uh, depending on where you are politically, some of those images are good, some of those are bad, right? Here's the thing, though. Biblically speaking, the word rule is always connected to responsibility. All right, so let me, let me repaint the word rule for you just a little bit. A little bit later on, after God had told Adam and Eve, be fruitful, increase in number, rule over the planet, he takes Adam and he goes, hey, I've got a project for you. Why don't you guys come with me? And Adam, I want you to name, I want you to name all the creatures. And so God would bring creature by Adam and Adam would go, hippopotamus. And God would go, that's incredible, I love it. <laughs> then another animal would come and he would go, chipmunk. And God was like, that is incredible. I love it. See, one of the things we get from the scripture is there's very little, there's very little rules involved in all of this and we never see God vetoing Adam's expression. Isn't this crazy? Like, God wasn't joking. When he said rule, he meant it. Chipmunk. Squirrel. Scorpion. And the whole time, God is going, I love it. I love, that is so good. Platypus. Very, very, that's an incredible animal. So Adam begins to, to name the animals, which is actually, it's evidence that he's beginning to rule, right? Because Adam begins to put his fingerprint on what God has already created. Now, how many of you know that when you name something, you just became responsible for it? How many of you all were eight, and your dad brought you the dog, and you named it, Right? I had a dog, his name was Bo. I named it. And from the time I named him, I was responsible for it. What did that mean? I had, it meant I had to go feed the dog, right? Water the dog. Make sure he had hay in his, in his doghouse during the winter. So some of us have this idea that rule means like this super dominionist, uh, extract, uh, use the earth and use people for my own pleasure. Have them come underneath me. Have them serve me and wash my feet. And biblically speaking, that's not at all what it means what it means is you've become responsible for creation's good. You've become responsible for your neighbor's good. Amen? Amen. 
Yeah, um, when Heather and I had our, our firstborn son, River, you know, a little guy, and we called him River. I became responsible for him. Right? So God is calling us to dream a dream. He's calling us to be visionary, prophetic people who, who see things, who look into dark places that are not functioning in kingdom order, and to begin to prophetically call into them the kingdom order. And when we do that, one of the things that he's wanting us to do is he's wanting us to co-rule with him, which means why don't you just become responsible for that area over there? See, we become responsible for the areas that we have vision for. And all of this is about community. All of this is about community. This is one of those litmus tests we can apply to our desires. Because I could feel it. Some of you were very uncomfortable with the notion of living out of desire. The good news is that wasn't you. It's just the religious spirit that follows you around. But it'll come off eventually. But this is all about community. And it's one of the litmus tests that we can give to our desires. Okay, so God says to Adam and Eve, I want you to be fruitful and increase in number, right? The only way they could fulfill the call was in intimate community, right? You realize Adam couldn't do that on his own? Neither could Eve do that on her own. It takes, it takes a community. So anything that's going to be born in the kingdom is always going to take community. All of our desires, if, if any of our desires separate us from community, that's probably an illegal desire. Desire that actually draws us into greater community. Desire that, that causes, causes me to realize that I actually need people to fulfill this kingdom vision. That is an appropriate desire, and that's one that God will bless. Look, verse 28, God blessed them. Not only that, but if the outcomes of my desires aren't greater community, that might be, that might be a sign that it's an illegal desire. Okay, so here in the kingdom of heaven, we're made, to walk, we're, made to, we're made to live out of desire, but it's a desire that causes me to realize that I need people more, and this communion, this intimate fellowship that we have in the process of following the vision and the dream of God, will not, it won't just stay with us, but it will result in greater community. So Adam and Eve, they have intimate fellowship, and then there's Adam, Eve, and baby, Right? Because the kingdom of God is always about expansion. It's about spreading the blessing. It's about taking the blessing and then reproducing that in others. It's not about consolidating power. Ever. God said to Abraham, he says, Hey, I want to bless you. I want to bless you more than I've ever blessed anyone. And the reason I want to bless you is so that you can just be awesome. No, he said, I want to bless you so that you can bless the entire world. That's 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 a picture of the kingdom. See, God wants to bless every single person in here so that you can reproduce that in someone else. So that you can reproduce that in a hundred other people. Some of you will reproduce that in thousands of other people. See, this isn't self-centered idealism. This is always about God. He is always the first. This isn't, this isn't self-centered idealism. This isn't about becoming people who use other people 
to extract the pleasure of life out of them. It's about, it's about dreaming with God and seeing some sort of expansion happen. And, and one of the ways that we can begin to purify our desires is uh, it, there's a little scripture in, in Psalms. It's Psalm 37, uh, verse 4. It says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. See, delight, the ability to, de- to delight ourselves in the Lord, it's heart purification. It actually purifies our heart. It changes our heart to the kind of place. Uh, it, ca- it changes our heart to, to be the kind of place that, it, it, uh, that our heart becomes a hospitable home for the desires that God pleases in already. The ability to delight in Him. So it does that. The other thing that delight does is it activates the hand of God. He'll give you the desires of your heart. So our heart gets changed and it also activates the hand of God. The ability to delight in, to, to delight in God. And uh, what delight really means is, is that means that God has become our source of joy. And this is really, really subtle. I think it's really interesting that the psalmist doesn't say, believe in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. He doesn't say, uh, believe the right things about God, and God will give you the desires of your heart. He says, delight in the Lord. So much, it's much more subtle. How many of you know that you can believe in things that you do not delight in? Oh, how many of you know that when you delight in something, it's hard not to believe in it? It's a totally different place. And so when, we, when, we, when we're moving from that place of delight, one of the things that says is, it's, 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 it's a subtle picture, but it's so important for us. We're living from this place where God has become my joy. It's not merely me recognizing that there is a God. It's not me merely having an intellectual interaction with God. It's not me merely being able to check off the right answers on the Bible test. It's me being able to say all of that and, God, I like you. Like, to be around you, I get joy from being around you. When we're the kind of person that gets joy from being around God, we're the kind of person who realizes that God is great. We're the kind of person that, that realizes God is good, that God is love, and God is for me. Even more subtly, uh, delight is a means of trusting Him. And even more subtly than that, delight is a place that we can obey Him from. See, sometimes in the church, pastors just get up and just whack people. You know, you need to obey God. No, you know what you really do? You need to delight in Him. See, duty is just the shadow of delight. See, so many of us live from a place of duty. Duty is only about C minus good. At best, duty is only about C minus good. Delight is A plus in the kingdom. See, a lot of us live with this heavy burden. Oh, I've got to work for God, you know. I've got to, I've got to live my entire life out of this place of duty. I've, I've got to do it. I've got to do it. I've got to do it. I've got to. Man, once we get to that place, you just need to stop. Take six months off. Go back to the point where you, where you remember the, the time when you like, used to like God. And go back to the point where you, where you could find delight in Him. And I promise you, once you get back to that point, everything else will work itself out. Duty is just, it's the shadow. It's the moon. Delight is the sun. Duty is the moon. At best.
Duty is the dark side of the force. For all of you geeks out there. See, duty looks good, but it will become a prison to you. It looks good on the outside. It's just religion. It will become a prison to you. Delight. Delight is the noonday sun. One of the sure signs that you've been bitten with religion, one of the sure signs that you've been bitten with religion is the thought that this whole living from a place of desire and this whole like dreaming with God thing, that sounds like fun, but I don't think we should do it. Can I tell you something? Like life with God was actually meant to be enjoyable and meant to be fun. Your walk with Jesus, how many of you realize that Jesus was a happy person? I mean, I don't think we get this sometimes. We've got that one verse in Isaiah that says he was a man of sorrows. I think that was like one and a half percent of who Jesus was. You know, I think with the other 98.5 percent, I just did math. The other 98.5 percent of Jesus was just incredible joy. Even in Hebrews, it says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. Like even in the midst of the most difficult in dark moment, Jesus was able to maintain joy. Why? Because he, because he was living from a... He was dreaming with God. He was, the dream of God had so captured his heart, it had changed his motivation and changed his desires. And so when he woke up in the morning, like being with people wasn't a problem, it was a joy. Like Jesus, when Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 28, go make disciples of all nations, like a lot of us hear that, and actually the, the heart response, if we're really, really honest, is... We feel guilty, right? We feel always like, oh, man, dude, I wish that was in the Bible because I don't do that, and furthermore, I don't even know how to do that, right? So the Great Commission becomes a source of duty, and some of us go out and, like, you know, we even spent, some of us have even spent time, like, going door to door, you know, or something crazy like that because we live with a sense of duty. Can I tell you something? That when we become the kingdom visionary prophetic people who are dreaming the dream of God, Matthew 28 no longer looks like duty, it looks like delight. Not only that, but God will form in you the way that he wants you to make disciples, and it might be preaching, and it probably won't be. See, one of the problems is that, is that the thing that we most center, around, center our faith, and our, uh, or at least the expressions of faith around, is, is we've been so powerfully formed by me standing up in front of you and talking. And so one of the things that happens is everyone in the room thinks, well, if I'm going to get serious with God, I've got to become some sort of preacher like Adam or Ray or Andrew or something. Not true. In fact, what God would like you to do is he would like you to dream a dream. He would like you to catch a vision. He would like you to become a prophetic person. He would like for you to, to step into the darkest point of Campbellsville, live your enjoyable, normal life, and find the people around you who are utterly miserable because there's captives everywhere, and then he would like you to reproduce your joy into their misery. That's actually what he would like to do. And some of us are thinking, well, Adam, this sounds too much fun. What about that whole thing that Jesus was talking about, like, you know, dying to ourselves and picking up to our cross and, like, finding the hardest thing to do and going and doing that? Right? Because it seems to be a bit of a kingdom paradox. I'm telling you, I think it's better for us to live from a place of desire 
And then some of us are thinking, well, didn't Jesus say that we shouldn't do that? Didn't he say, pick up your cross? Well, let me, let me put it this way. How many people in here are married? How many people in here got married because you had to? Shotgun weddings? No. Here's the deal. We all get married from a place of desire, right? We all get married from a place of delight, right? How many of you know that after about six months of marriage, you realize, this is going to kill me? Can I tell you something? The cross is built in. I realized that the first night that Heather threw a lamp at me across the room. She only did that once. But I realized in that moment, if I was going to be able to maintain the delight and the desire in my marriage, things in me were going to have to change. And I'm telling you, you, there's two main ways that God will crucify the flesh in your life. It's called your wife and then your kids. How many of you love your kids? Source of delight. How many of you love changing diapers? See, the crucifixion is built in. Some of it is just flat out built in. Yeah, I realized about six months after I got married, <laughs> I just realized about six months after I got married that, that if, if we were going to, if we were going to, do this, and it was going to be awesome for years and years and years, that I was going to have to change. But desire brought me to that point. Okay? Duty didn't. Desire brought me to that point. And it was, the, it was because my heart had been, so, had been and is still, I can honestly say that, had been and is still so gripped with desire for my wife and delight in our family that I am still willing to change. I don't do it great all the time, but I'm still willing to change. I'm still willing to say no to me and yes to you guys. You know? I'm a terrible counselor. If you have issues, you probably don't need to come to me, but, but I've talked to enough people whose marriages were going crazy, to know that people's marriages don't get healthy from a place of duty and we ought to. I've never seen it happen. I've only seen divorce come from a duty and we ought to. I've seen people who were on the brink of extinction maritally come back from the brink because they recaptured the vision of desire and delight in their family. I've only ever seen that. Ever. See, one of the things I want to tell you is the crisis is built in. And Jesus just says, would you please pick it up? Please don't leave it behind. Yeah, one of the things that I want everybody in this church to know is I want, I want you to know that we're all... We're made to live from a place of desire. We're all, everybody in here is called to be a dreamer. Everybody in here is allowed to do great things. 
You know, just because you follow Jesus, it doesn't mean that you're disallowed from doing great things. Can I tell you what? Humility doesn't disallow you from doing great things. Meekness isn't the disqualification from being able to do great things. Everybody in here is allowed to go and do something awesome. And, and, and the way that we begin to, um, we begin to walk with Jesus in these, in, these, in these paths is when we begin to follow desire, when we begin to dream, and, when, and especially when we begin to take others along for the ride. See, we're called to make disciples. And so one of the things I feel like the Lord wants to do this morning is, uh, is I feel like he wants to ask everybody in the room, what are you afraid to do? You might want to take a second here. What are you afraid to do? What's the thing that you, like, you won't even tell your wife about it, but you think about it a lot, and the truth of the matter is you've never taken one step in that direction because of fear? What is the thing that seems most like a pipe dream, but you, you stay on a straight jacket of fear? need to really locate that here's why fear has nothing to do with the kingdom of god we all know that right god is love scripture says that perfect love casts out fear but fear is a great indicator what do i mean by indicator i, I can't tell you how many times uh, that i've sat down and talked with people and discovered their call in life by what they were most afraid of See, the enemy almost always plants fear around the thing you're most supposed to do. Some of us have been like completely gripped with fear for our whole life. And that's the exact thing we're supposed to move right in. Fear is unwelcome. It's not a part of the kingdom, but it's oftentimes an indicator of our call. It's the voice that defies your dreams. If I can put a picture on it, it's, it's the Goliath that stands in your life and just every morning calls out and curses you. Anybody have one of those? I'm like, Am I the only person? All right. And I feel like that's what the Lord wants to do this morning. Is he, wants to, he wants to give us kingdom courage. That'd be all right? Amen. Well, why don't we do this? Why don't we stand up? If you're on the ministry team, come on up. Hey, Genoa.